Maybe you felt chills or goosebumps. Perhaps it's an overwhelmed feeling of something bigger than you or more complex. Whatever the feeling, God put the response in your soul as a reminder of His presence, power, and glory. It's called awe, and He wants to remind us of it every day in many ways. Join us as we discover how God has used His awe to inspire others to follow Him deeper in their lives. So today on In Awe by Bruce, we're very excited to have Brian Goodell with us. Brian's an award-winning Hollywood screenwriter. His movie, To End All Wars, starring Kiefer Sutherland, was awarded the Commander-in-Chief Medal of Service, Honor, and Pride by the Veterans of Foreign Wars. He won the first Heartland Film Festival and showcased the Cannes Film Festival Cinema for Peace. Beyond multiple screenplays, he's written documentaries as well as adapted books for films such as Frank Peretti's The Visitation. He lectures in high schools and colleges, churches, on the art of watching and writing movies. He even has a book called Hollywood Worldviews, watching films with wisdom and discernment. His video on the subject starts off with what I love, God loves movies. He also is an Amazon best-selling author of biblical fiction, such as the Chronicles of the Nephilim, or provocative theology, God Against the Gods. I even found his writing in a book that was right next to me on the shelf, Apologetics for a New Generation by Sean McDonald, where he talks about persuasion and storytelling in trying to reach people for Christ. You can catch his obsession with God, movies, and worldview, which leads us to his theological storytelling. You'll feel that tonight. And as we delve into these items with Brian, I guarantee, as it says in a bio uh, I had read on him, that they will blow your mind and inspire your soul. So listen closely because you'll learn new things today. I guarantee that. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on, Bruce. No problem. Glad to have you here. And just to kick it off, one to start off with, you know, when you think of being in awe of God, what has God done in your life or others' lives that's inspired you to be where you are today? Hmm. Yeah, well, um, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I have anything, any particular events, but the, the things that tend to inspire me with awe, I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a writer, um, I've always loved to read. And I have to say that one of the things that really moves me is theology. And, and you know, I, for some people that's not very interesting, but, but what I mean by that is when I study in depth the Bible, not just reading it, you know, and oh, read this story and oh, I learned this principle, how to love my neighbor or how to do this or that. Now, of course, that's all part of it, but, but when I really study the deeper things of God, you know, like not as if there's like secrets, knowledge or Gnosticism, but just sort of just getting to go deeper and deeper into the word, you find it's just bottomless. And, <laughs> and, and over the years, the thing that has, and I really do get a sense of awe from this is I, I study the, the, the poetry and the uh, the language of the Bible and, you know, the the way that it explains things and the beauty of it is what it is what draws off from me because I see God using all this beautiful language and concepts and deep things 
and they all in, and he integrates it all into his word to make it all work and make sense. And you, after 40 years of being a Christian, I still feel like I'm learning more and more things about him and about his word, you know, through his word. And so it's like endless, you know, you could just keep, keep going. And so particularly for me, the beauty, the beauty of his word is what, is what really gets to me. You know, um, one example of that is, is, um, okay, let me give you an example. One of my favorite sort of images in the Bible, it's a theological image. It's Leviathan. Now, some <laughs> Christians think that Leviathan is, a, was a dinosaur or something like that, or it, it's not. And certainly when you read it on the surface, it gives you this impression, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's basically communicating that God is, you know, powerful than anything and even the most powerful sea monster that they can think of or whatever, you know, God could crush his heads and that kind of thing. But, but you know what, you study it and, and in its ancient Near Eastern context, as well as uh, the Jewish context, you learn that Leviathan is actually a mystical sea dragon of chaos. Ah. And, you know, I use that word and some Christians might, oh, mystical, oh, it's myth. No, no. You know, it's like, no, no, I'm not <laughs> talking about the Bible's myth. What I'm saying is that that the writers were very sophisticated. They, they didn't just write scientific language, straight history. They embedded all their history and all their theology with all these images. And so the, the Leviathan throughout the different passages, and it was a very common concept back in those days to 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 picture the chaos of the world as the sea dragon connected to the sea but also the dragon and so you would tell your stories about how your god would tame the sea dragon of chaos to bring his covenanted order into the world mm. and you know everyone did this the babylonians did the egyptians did and the canaanites did so it wasn't it wasn't unique but it's still beautiful imagery mm -hmm. so when you read something like psalm 74 and it talks about the red sea parting and and, and God is describing how he was leading Moses and his people through those parted waters, which is another common imagery of, of God's power over the seas was something that all the gods of all the different religions did, you know, appealed to. And it says that as they're passing through the sea, it says, you know, he was establishing his covenant with his people. And it says God crushed the heads of Leviathan Mm. Uh, and he caused them to eat him in the wilderness type of thing, you know? Yeah. And of course, it's not just that, oh, there's sea monsters in the ocean that he's holding back. It's like, no, no, that's part, that's just part of the poetic imagery that is saying when God established his covenant and order through Moses, right? Because that, that was the first covenant. And um, it was described, part of that description is, one, he uses creation language, like, I established the heavens and the earth when I when he led his people through the seas and established his covenant with his people, right? So creation language is used there, but also this language of God crushing the heads of Leviathan. And that's a way of expressing he is bringing his covenanted order into this world of chaos, mm. God's order, and he puts back the chaos. And this whole order versus chaos is a very... Um, it's a perennial notion that has gone through all of history and all of religions. So mm -hmm. it's, but that's the beauty of it. As you go in, you go deeper into the word, you find this notion of God is the, the orderer of the, over the chaos of this world, you know? And uh, that's just one, one element to express what I'm saying. But, you know, that's a theological concept. But look at all the beauty connected to it. You know, this notion of sea monsters, dragons, and tying it in with actual historical events, you know? I, I just think that's beautiful and awe-inspiring. 
you know, Brian, I love the, there's a balance you're bringing here that, that I like. And, you know, the first thing is when you said theology inspires you and you talked about being an artist, somebody may think off the bat, those two don't go together, (laughs) you know, and yet what you just did was pull those two together. And the balance that I like from those is that, and maybe you can expand on this a little bit at this moment, you know, so I'm going to go more specific, but it's the balance of reading the Bible, not just as facts, or not just as uh, either a source of just intelligent things, you know, yeah. this, that, and the other, but but also bringing in, just like you do with a, a movie or with a story that you're writing, you bring in illustrations and metaphors and and things that represent symbolism. And so tell us more about how you pull that together and read the Bible and what would be helpful for people that are listening. Yeah, that's a good question. I think what you're talking about is propositional truth. Yes. And, and propositional truth is is an element of modernity, and um, which is the world we live in, which is good. It's not a bad mm. thing, but it's basically it's a very it's a re- rational uh, approach to truth. God is logos. Part of what logos means is you know sort of the underlying order of the universe, right? Mm. But of course, mm-hmm. in the Bible, it, it adds a personal dim- dimension to it as well. I was raised in a tradition, evangelicalism, and um, basic evangelical, non-denominational at first, but um, I've always kind of been a non-denominational person in, in some ways, but what I'm just trying to say is that a standard Orthodox Christian believer, you know, nothing fancy. And um, and I think in that tradition, we have had an intellectualized um, effect on our theology. So, you know, and part of it is because we have all these study aids and people studying the original languages, this is all good stuff, but it can create a sense of seeking truth through propositional truth. You know? Truth, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is all good, but it's not the only thing. And so what happened is, I write about this in my book, The Imagination of God. It's about my personal journey. I was always an artist, but when I became a Christian, I, I became very interested in apologetics. I just was always fascinated by doubt and by, you know, and by, by challenges to truth and to my faith. And, and it forced me to look into answers and you know, find out what is the evidence for this side or that side, and and it was a very, it's been a very helpful thing on my on my faith, and I was very apologetics driven, and I also got through that I became focused heavily on doctrine. Again, this is all good stuff, but I think over the years I sort of developed a kind of an intellectualized faith, you know. Now because I was an artist, I've always had an appreciation for the imagination. Mm-hmm. had no problem with that, and I know God blesses that, God likes that, but I, I didn't necessarily put the two together, see, and, and that was something I think I struggled with. My normal life was much, much more open to imagination, but my theological life, my life of pursuing God was more rational and propositional. And what happened was just, I got to the point where I realized I was becoming very intellectualized and God was becoming more of a philosophy than a person and all that. Mm-hmm. And I started, this is also around the time when I, theologically, I was starting to study this general approach of seeking to understand the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. We tend to read the Bible through our own eyes and we don't even know it. 
Hmm. And but when you seek to find out, well, what did it mean to to them in their time period? You know, we read mm-hmm. these parables, we read a lot of words, and we think we know what they mean. But in their ancient context, removed from us by thousands of years and thousands of miles, they can oftentimes mean something very different. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and I think a classic case of this is all the literalism that that comes uh, comes out of that, where we tend to think that there's a lot of stuff literally in the Bible that it's not intending to be literal. And and of course, the the response is is you're liberal if you're if you if you don't think it's literal and it's just mm. not the case because mm-hmm. that's not how they thought back then right so the goal is is to see it through their eyes and so when that started transforming my my theology and i started seeing these cultural differences and which has a lot to do with the poetry like you said the the poems the um the parables, the, the the images that are used throughout, and even the genres of literature of the Bible itself, that's when I started to realize the limits of reason, you know, mm. and I, C.S. Lewis had this experience in his life where I write about this in, in my book because it was really encouraging to hear that, oh, he went through this too, where, you know, he had become so obsessed with apologetics, and then he had this debate with Anscombe, this Roman Catholic philosopher, and she demolished his arguments for the existence of God that he had. And it really disturbed him, not because, you know, he, he realized that there's a difference between the existence of God and arguments for the existence of God, right? <laughs> right. And so, um, but, but that was the point, that was the time around when he was realizing, you know, there is a limit to reason. And that it was about that time period where he started to focus more on, on his imagination and wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that that's, what's ha- that's what happened to me, too. This isn't a negation of reason. It's not saying, oh, throw out reason, throw out logic. No, not at all. It's just you, you start to realize that it only goes so far and that God himself mm-hmm. uses – by the way, story is about the, the number one thing that God uses to communicate truth or yes. theology in the Bible, not systematic theology, okay? And even though there are propositional truths in the Bible, of course – uh, the dominant mode uh, the, of communication God uses is storytelling, which includes images. Mm. It includes metaphors, poetry, figurative language, all this kind of stuff. And the more you see that, the more you start to realize how you've often misinterpreted many things. You know, so yeah. that's sort of what was opening it up for me in in, in terms of uh, seeing the Bible, trying to understand the Bible through the ancient. Uh, Jewish eyes rather than my modern Western eyes. That was what really broke the door open. And so I wrote about it in, in the book, The Imagination of God, about that journey. And then I try to give biblical basis to Christians to understand, like, because look, as an evangelical, I always like to prove things from the Bible, right? I don't, don't just tell mm. me something. Prove me, prove it from the Bible. Give me a Bible verse, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I've always been like that. So I, I did that. I, I went through the book and I, I just exegeted all these passages where God uses drama. Like there are, do you know that some of the prophets, I, I think we forget, like, some of the prophets were actually, their prophecies were dramas. Yes. You know, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel both Ugh. did a lot of dramatic plays yeah. as the prophecies, right? So he would right. he would do things like, you know, he would, um, he would, he built this little miniature city mm. and besieged it and said, you know, this is what God's going to do to Jerusalem, right? Jeremiah, was it Jeremiah who, who you know, he cut all his hair off and then he, he laid on his side for how many days 300 days that was ezekiel that was ezekiel right so he does that as a you know (laughs) as a sign that that action that drama was itself the prophecy right and so you you start to see 
how much God uses imagination, drama, images, pictures, you know, how often he describes himself as a as a rock or a or a strong tower or mm. whatever. Even how he revealed himself mm. in that time period to the Jews. He used thunder, lightning, all these basically tangible physical means of expressing his presence. Now we know that that was just a, a sort of a a symbol of God's presence he was using it wasn't God himself right but the point is is that's what God uses the the pillar of fire the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night right and he uses all these sensate physical images to communicate his presence and his truth so I, I try to lay out just kind of go through all that stuff that I've seen and give some examples of mm -hmm. of how we misinterpret things you know I think one of the things that we often misinterpret i think is is this this prophetic language you know we tend to yeah interpret it so much of it literally and it just it just really isn't you know and i've written whole books on that <laughs> and had whole uh podcasts just devoted to that kind of stuff itself but um yeah that was part of my journey well if some if somebody's take a moment for a, a commercial ad you could say if somebody's intrigued by what you're saying and wants to understand more about making sure that they're seeing the eyes of the Bible from the eyes of those people that wrote it and the people of the time. What do you have? You have a website that they can go to and find all this information, correct? Yeah, my website, Godawa.com. That's my name, G-O-D-A-W-A. I have a lot of information there about all my books, all my series. You can find the tabs, you know, Chronicles of the Nephilim, Chronicles of the Watchers, Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And with each of the series, I also tend to include some theological books because one of the things I do is a lot of my books are retelling biblical stories with a supernatural paradigm. And we could talk about that in, in a few minutes, but mm -hmm. but I always like, I know Christians like to have things explained to them. And, and because I use a lot of imagination, I just felt like I wanted Christians to realize that I'm not just making this stuff up. I'm not playing with the word of God. There's, there's a lot of this stuff in there. And so I would write books and appendixes uh, where I explain some of the theological um, foundations of what I'm talking about, right? For example, my book, End Times Bible Prophecy, it may not be what you originally think it is, but um, that is one where I explain a lot about what I think is the poetic ancient Hebrew context of a lot of the prophecy images. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not exactly the, what we what we think of them as, you know, that's, that's one example. But all the books and appendices I do tend to, to deal with this material, you know. Mm. But the imagination of God is a good theological primer for those who really want to see, well, how I, I know God uses creativity, the arts and stuff, but I go so far as to say it's I'm not just saying that art is okay. God is okay with art. Right. I'm, I'm not just justifying art. What I'm saying is actually the extent to which you cut out imagination from your understanding of God in the Bible, you are actually missing out on the fullness of what God wants you to understand him as. This is an important part for all of us to learn. That's The Imagination of God is one of those books. And another book is God Against the Gods. And that's a book where I talk about how God redeems pagan imagination. So what I mean by that is if you read in the Bible, there's a lot of things that are very in common with Canaanites, with Egypt and with other um, ancient cultures. But I'm not saying that God got that stuff from them. All I'm saying is the writers of the Bible are men of their time. They mm -hmm. reference a lot of images, just like 
I, as a Christian, say I wrote a vampire story, you know, today, and I yeah. have a Christian worldview to it, but I might use the vampire imagery to talk about how the, the symbolism of blood that saves us, you know, that kind of a thing. It's the same way back then. Like I said earlier, Leviathan was an image in every ancient uh, Near Eastern culture. It's just that the Jews used it to mean for their own purposes, and uh, God does a lot of that in the Bible. I do a lot of it explaining of those details. It's nothing to be afraid of. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, you, you see the mythical creatures in the world of, of Narnia. All of them are subject to Aslan. So you might see a centaur, which is a Greek mythological image in, you know, in Narnia, right, as well right. as as well as a satyrs and all these pagan creatures in Narnia, but Aslan is lord of all. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the approach that I take where, look, even pagans come up with interesting concepts, but God can redeem those images and redeem that creativity for his, for his own purposes. Right, which is kind of what you're saying C.S. Lewis did with those. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. So now, looking at the other side, if you're taking the understanding of stories and, and applying them, and but somebody might look and go, so are you saying that David fought Goliath is really just telling us we can overcome the giants in our lives? No, I'm not. And and um, another thing is, is that Christians are very afraid of mythology. And mm -hmm. and uh, this is another, you know, I'm going to go back to C.S. Lewis again, because C.S. Lewis wrote one of his most popular, I think, articles called Myth Became Fact. And his mm -hmm. whole point was that he had just seen the Bible as a bunch of mythical languages and, and, and stories that were very similar to other pagan world that he had studied, right? Other pagan concepts and stuff. And Tolkien ha helped him to realize that, well, of, of course there's going to be connections and similarities because God embeds his mythology into the universe and pagan man discovers it and twists it for his own purposes. Mm. But the beauty of the gospel is, is that all that stuff about dying and rising gods, which existed long before Jesus, the, you know, the notion of dying and rising gods. Mm -hmm. said, but the beauty of Jesus is God had embedded that into the universe. When Jesus came along, the myth became fact. He took hmm. all that and he, he, he made it real. And so I see a lot of it the same way. Like that doesn't mean the Red Sea miracle was a myth. It, but what it does mean is God uses that same mythological meaning in mm -hmm. the historical events that he's doing. And when you come to understand the meanings, that's where it gets richer and, and deeper. So there's no need to be afraid of mythology. Yeah. And there's no need to – yeah, there, there's no need to be afraid of that. I'm saying – what I'm saying is that mythology is simply a phrase that means – that refers to the meaning behind uh, what's being said. But right. I don't know if I, if I answered what you were saying. Yeah, no, I think at least I, I feel clear about that. When you're talking to people about sharing the gospel, for instance, you, you were saying that you were into apologetics, and yeah. and let's say a situation comes up where you can talk to somebody about the Lord, reading like from the apologetics for new generation, what you, what you said earlier, you kind of echoed that. What are some of the things that are different from what you used to believe to what you now maybe include in talking to somebody? Because, and, and this is a big point for me because I was a sales trainer. And so I was always trying to, to work to get the salespeople to see that a story was much more powerful than just throwing out facts about your company. Bingo. Right. That's right there. That's that probably that's the heart and soul of it all is is that I also because my my apologetics tended to be rational argumentation. Right. 
And yep. so I became, you know, sort of defending faith was defending the facts and all that kind of stuff. And the truth is, is that people do respond more to stories anyway. One of those aspects was a personal testimony. Well, I certainly acknowledged that the Bible had people giving their testimony of what God did in their life. And I certainly accepted that as part of our for witnessing, right? I always tended to degrade it in my heart because I thought, you know what? Hindus have testimonies, right? Everybody has, Scientology people have testimonies. So it's very subjective and very relative. And I always felt like it just didn't have the the same impact or power that the facts would have or the logic reason, you know, that kind of a thing. But I've since changed and I've made my personal testimony, my personal story about what God is doing in my life mm -hmm. and how he saved me, of course. But even what, even just what he's doing now, yeah. I give that a higher priority now. And I try to make sure that I'm always telling that, that story about what God is doing because the Holy Spirit uses that, you know. So, um, mm -hmm. so what if it's subjective? So what if it's God is the one who uses that stuff? It's not about us anyway. So that was that's one element. And also realizing that, you know, telling a story, there's an art to it, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that Christians tend to feel the need to have everything very explicitly spelled out. Like if they don't give the four spiritual laws or whatever, they haven't said the gospel or, you know. Right. Um, and again, I come from that background, so I appreciate it. But when you tell a good story, sometimes you leave some things to mystery. Jesus would tell a parable and a lot of parables are literally open-ended precisely because they're 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 caused to make you think yes you know it's like he doesn't give you the conclusion because it's it makes you think and christians are afraid of leaving things open-ended or leaving mystery because they feel like they're not being clear with the gospel i i have a very different view about that now because i think that god is in the beauty god is in the mystery god is in the ambiguity even at times mm. and and so consequently i'm like I don't always spell things out. I make them work for it. Just like um, Jesus with Zacchaeus and the woman with the oil, the prostitute and stuff. Yeah. He let the people come to him. You know, he didn't go run after them. He People who were hungry would come and, and ask and, and seek to find out. And so uh, I don't always spell things out. And I think that that also helps in our relationships with people because you're not always preaching at them and they don't feel, they'll feel more. Yes. If you're allowing a certain amount of mystery, a certain mm. amount of openness, you don't try to solve everything. You don't try to always have answers. That's another thing about apologetics. You always got to have an answer. Always got to have an answer. Oh, and yeah. now I, I am much more inclined to say, uh, well, to admit, I don't know. I never thought about that. I, I don't care if I don't. I'm like, you know what? I'll, I'll think about that because I haven't thought about yeah. that before. I have no problem. Or even saying, you know, admitting when you're wrong or something like that. All these things that when you when you tend to feel like you need to have the answers for everything when you're in apologetics. But actually, sometimes the most powerful effect is, you know, I, I don't have an I don't know about that. You know, I don't have an answer mm. for that. When they see that you're human you're open you're not yeah. you don't think you know everything that becomes a relational connection to them that they listen to you more than if you felt like you always have to have an answer for everything yeah a couple of things that you're saying that that always strike me that are helpful to take the pressure off me because i think a lot of us christians feel so much pressure for evangelism one is what you're expressing there is good fishing which yeah. is allure attracts you don't push the lure on the fish, you know, yeah. it goes before them and they see it and it's, it builds a story, you might say, in front of it that draws it. 
The other thing is that I think when, you know, like you're saying, when you say, I don't, I've never thought about that, I don't have an answer for that, or that you leave things open, the relief for me is that I always have to remind myself, I don't bring people to Christ. Yeah. I do what Paul says. I may water, I may, I may plant, I may do, but God's the one who causes that growth. And so it's the Holy Spirit, not me. And whew. He just wants you know, me to tell what I know. Part of one of those is what I call subversion. And yeah. again, I'm coming at it from a storyteller's perspective, and I, I want to try to uh, apply it to normal everyday life as well. But when the Apostle Paul, one of the only two places in, in the New Testament where you actually see someone preaching the gospel to unbelievers, he's on Mars Hill, right, in Acts 17. And I wrote a whole chapter on this, and, and it's in my book, God Against the Gods, and, um, you know, I think it might even also be in the imagination of God, but anyway, it's about Paul's apologetic on Mars Hill, mm-hmm. and what I, what, what's interesting, I, all through the years, I'd always, everybody, every apologetic group claims that passage, because, you know, he's really getting apologetics there, but through my understanding of story and the arts, I actually started to have a different view that I think is more like what, what, what he was doing, and that is... Um, what he was doing was narrative subversion. And so what he was doing, if you look, and, and I detail all this in the passage, but if yeah. you look at Paul's talking to them, everything he says mm-hmm. is is related to something that they believe. So, for instance, you know, he'll say things like, you're very religious people, right? I walk through the cemetery here and stuff. But he says, he quotes, like, even as one of your poets says— in him, everything lives and moves and has its its being. Well, he mm. was actually quoting Stoic philosophers. He, but he's not just quoting philosophers. He's actually telling a story. And the story is the story of Stoicism, which basically believed this, that Zeus – now, there's different varieties, of course. But basically, yeah. Stoic, Zeus was not a real god. He was just a metaphor for logic and reason and such. But that we were all created with the spark of divinity within us. Hmm. And man's problem is not that he's sinner. It's that he doesn't realize this knowledge, this Mm -hmm. godhood inside him, right? And so we become enlightened when we realize that we are all created by Logos or Zeus, you know, that kind of a thing. And we're all connected in him. And we all have that connection. And then the universe is goes through a cycle of creation, destruction, creation, destruction. It's called the great conflagration. And that what that meant was the, the universe would all burn up and then like Phoenix from the ashes, it would rise up and be created again. That was mm. sort of part of their paradigm, right? So if you look at what Paul's saying, he's, he's sort of telling a story that's similar to all of that, mm-hmm. but he brings in tw- different twists. Like for instance, when he says, in him, we live and move and have our being. Well, he says your your own poet said that, and Paul's quoting it favorably. But the truth is, is that their understanding of that was that Zeus is inside of all of us. Mm-hmm. That's what that meant to them. Well, that doesn't mean that to Paul or us, right? But right. Paul was twisting the meaning for his own purposes, indicating that God is everywhere. And we live and move under his sovereignty type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So in a way, he's kind of redefining things as he goes. So he's retelling their stories, mm-hmm. redefining the meaning. And he doesn't always – it's interesting. He doesn't always explain it. Like, let me see if I can um, – I should have looked up that passage because he doesn't <laughs> always 
explain he, – he's not a very good evangelist by modern-day standards because he doesn't explain the differences. He quotes it, and if we live and move, have our being, even if some of your own poets have said, we indeed are his offspring. Uh, that's another thing, but it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. When the Stoics said we are his offspring, it's saying all people are the children of God because we all have God in us, right? And that's mm -hmm. not what all means. But he doesn't tell them the difference. That's the thing. And then get a load of this. He goes, because, and then he ends, so he's got all these similarities. But then at the end, he does the twist, kind of like in the movie where, like, remember the, the Sixth Sense? You, you're watching it, and then all of a sudden the twist oh, happens, yeah. and you realize everything's the opposite of what you thought it was. Well, that's what yeah. Paul does. He's, he's going along. He's telling all these things. Yeah, 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 just like you believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, like he says, God doesn't exist in a temple built with hands. That was a very common thing for Stoics to criticize Greeks because they, were, they believed in this Zeus, and they didn't think Zeus was real. They just thought it was uh -huh. a metaphor, right? The Stoics did, right? So then he goes – God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. At the very end of his sermon is when he really comes out. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they mocked him. Because the Greeks, the Stoics said there is no resurrection of the dead. Mm -hmm. So at some point, Paul does come out and deliberately contradict them. But it's it, a couple interesting things there is he brings them in like like telling a story. Yeah. He gets them to agree. He finds some common ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't right away – like we tend to think we have to stand against everything we disagree with, you know? Right. But Paul finds where he can agree even if it's not exact, right? Even if it's not the same. And he's telling the story, and then you bring them in, and then as they get into the story, then he does the twist. And yeah. the twist is – it can be offensive, but because you've sort of let your guard down, you follow the story. You're a little bit more open to it. Correct. But this is where he says he will judge the world by a man. Well, that would be very offensive to the Greeks because no man would, could judge the world, and, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. He says he gave assurance by raising him from the dead. But here's the thing. Even at that point, he never – says the name Jesus. Mm -hmm. So modern day evangelists would call Paul a bad evangelizer. Right. You know, because he, right. but why does he do that? I think it's because he was pointing and they knew he was a Jew and they knew he was basically a Christian and he, you know, they knew he was connected to Jesus, but he was definitely pointing to a man and they all knew who he was talking about, but he mm -hmm. didn't name the name of Jesus. Why? I think because there's something about that name that's very offensive, but if you don't tell them, you let them figure it out for them. So who's he talking about? Oh, they mumble with each other. We must be talking about Jesus because Jesus was the one who rose from the dead. He claims he was. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, in other words, they figure out for themselves. And when right. you let the audience figure a certain amount of it out for themselves, they mm -hmm. own it. But if you yes. tell them this is what you have to believe, blah, 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 then it becomes like, well, you know, don't tell me. You know, I, I can figure things out for myself. And look, I'm not saying to never say Jesus. I'm just saying this is one example where Paul uses subtlety and to, to express the gospel. And he uses it by telling the story of the Stoics. He's entering into their world, telling their stories, retelling them, then subverting it by coming in and giving a twist, showing how the gospel actually fulfills it and is superior to it. But even then, he allows them – and that's – by the way, that's the power of storytelling. Yes. If, if, you ha if you're too preachy in your storytelling, as many Christians are, it's mm. preachy. That's because you're telling them everything. But if you let them fig the audience figure it out for themselves, you leave a certain amount of things open so that they have to figure it out. Then they're more open to it, and they're more likely to to own it. 
by the way, this this happened with my movie. Let me give you a perfect example. Was yeah. my movie To End All Wars, which is, you know, on one level, it's it's pretty clear gospel story. But uh, so you've got these prisoners of war under the Japanese in World War II, and based on a true story, and the Allied prisoners are, are suffering. They're being tortured and beaten by their Japanese captors. And what happens is they're looking for some hope, and they don't have any hope. And then they finally find some books, and they, they rustle up some books, Plato, Shakespeare, and someone found a Bible. So they start teaching a little university where they just teach the books, and one of the books that they're teaching is the Bible. And, of course, it transforms the camp because they learn how to love each other and then lo love their neighbor and then love their enemy in the end. It's a very powerful story. Uh, it's on yeah. Amazon, by the way. I recommend you. It's really cheap now. You can watch it. It stars Kiefer Sutherland. But my point here was that there's a point in which they're – obviously, they're studying the Bible, and, and they're quoting Jesus' words. And mm -hmm. originally, we had written it in. You know, he's reading the Bible, says, Jesus said, you know, love your neighbor, blah, 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 right? But the truth is, is almost everybody in the world knows that love your neighbor was said by Jesus, right? So they, they realized that it felt like it was too preachy. Yeah. So they just yeah. cut it out, and they just cut to the scene. We're at the scene where, where he's reading from a book. They're teaching, and then he says, he's just reading from, he says, love your neighbor, and he quotes it, and and that's it. Right. You, know, you kind of see the black book. You think maybe it maybe is a Bible. But my point is, it wasn't super clear. Mm -hmm. But the point was, as people are watching, they're going, oh, oh, that must have been Jesus from the Bible. And it was more powerful by us uh -huh. taking the name of Jesus out of our story. Yeah. But making it. But it's like what Paul was doing. It's like, well, you know, we're quoting his words and anybody who has a brain knows. And, mm -hmm. and if they don't, they're going to wonder well, who said that. I'm going to look it up on Wikipedia. Right. Right. And so so it, by making the audience sort of figure it out for themselves, they they become much more open to the story and the message. That's a powerful, powerful way of of communicating the gospel. You know, isn't it kind of funny? Maybe I'm wrong here, but listen to that. It makes me think. So, was he using the Socratic method? Yes. With with the Greeks, because yeah. Socrates said, "Don't give people the answer; they have the answers inside. They know what the answers are if you just let them try and figure them out." Now, that's interesting. Now, that's where we as Christians would disagree with Aristotle in the sense that we would say, um, we would say. Well, Aristotle believed that everyone had the spark of God, divinity within yeah, them. That's why yeah. they, they had all the answers to the universe. Well, no, that's not true. Right, right. But that doesn't mean there's no truth to it. So mm -hmm. I do believe that if you let someone figure out for themselves, it's not that they have the answer in themselves so much as they can find it. Their discovery makes it feel like it's their own rather than, right. it's, than it's something you're telling me to believe. Now, okay, again, you know, I realize people can sometimes hear things that they, are you saying to never say the name of Jesus? No, right. I'm not saying that. Right, right. Sometimes there is an appropriate time. There is obviously examples in the scripture where it says, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. So yes. I'm not talking about that. But in terms of how to tell a good story, yeah. and as you're telling someone a story, even if, even if you want to have the gospel be a part of it, I think the bigger problem these days is, is that too many Christians do not have a vision for the lost to tell them the gospel. They, mm -hmm. I, I don't see many Christians with that consuming passion to defend the gospel, tell the gospel, apologetics. I don't see much of that at all, and that's really yeah. sad to me.
Yeah. That's a bigger problem to talk about. But but if you have that passion, if you have that desire to share the gospel with, this, with people as you can, you know, it's about being wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And I think that's one way of doing it. They talked about in the beginning provocative theology. So you've kind of expressed some of that through here, but what would you say are some of the things that you have that are more provocative that people haven't thought about or maybe need to think about or, you know, pieces of the Bible that sometimes we run right by and we don't make the deeper connection that could be there? Well, there's a lot there. I think that that leads us into this other topic that you wanted to talk about, which is um, uh, what I would call probably the divine counsel motif of the Bible or the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. And that is, gosh, about 10 years ago, I discovered Michael Heiser's writing. And I, I realized, oh, this would be a great movie. I'm a screenwriter, so I thought I'll, I'll write a movie about Noah because I was doing all this study. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool? And discovered Michael Heiser's. And his work, he's a Bible-believing Orthodox Christian scholar, but he writes about the divine counsel motif in the scripture that is something that I, I didn't really see before. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interwrapped with a lot of things, but I, I, I use that as a generic term, the divine counsel. And what that is in reference to is this, this notion that God has a heavenly host. He has a courtroom, a heavenly courtroom with a heavenly host of 10,000 times 10,000. And they're called sons of God and and all this. And of course, many people say, oh, yeah, yeah, there's angels around God's throne. But I mean, no, there's a specific counsel of them that he counsels with, literally. Not only that, but they go out and perform tasks that he sends them out to do, you know. And not only that, because of man's sinfulness at the Tower of Babel, after the flood, you'd think man would learn his lesson, but he didn't. So he builds a Tower of Babel and God says, okay, look, I'm going to you're going to keep worshiping these false gods. I'm going to hand you over to them. And Deuteronomy 32 talks about how God basically created the Gentile nations at the Tower of Babel, split the languages upright. He confused the languages so that mankind couldn't unify in evil, right? But he created the the 70 nations, and they all spoke differently, right? But then what it says in Deuteronomy 32 is that he placed them under the authority of the sons of God. If you do a Bible study on the sons of God, you'll see that the sons of God is a technical term that's used of the divine beings of God's heavenly host. And they're not just angels. Angel is a very generic term. Mm -hmm. Uh, People tend to use it and think of it as just they don't realize that it's it's a generic term that basically means messenger humans can be angels right so angel is kind of an imprecise term so these these beings called sons of god are called heavenly host they're called elohim or gods in the scriptures this is provocative but it's very biblical and it's not mormonism or anything like that it's monotheism but even within the biblical monotheism there is a description of the spiritual realm that doesn't fit our Western mindset or understanding. Mm -hmm. And so he has these sons of God that surround his throne and they're divine beings. And I got off track. So, so at the tower of Babel, when he creates the nations, he places the nations under the authority of these sons of God. Right. And these sons of God are, are, I don't have time to go into it now, but, but they're basically, they're fallen. They're, they're bad guys. And he basically says, you Gentile nations won't worship me, so you're going to be under the authority of false gods, these fallen sons of God. But Israel will be my own. So God will be the 
and he calls them watchers. You watch over these nations, and I will be the watcher, or Michael, as his representative, would be the watcher over Israel, right? And of course, mm-hmm. we read the term watchers in, in the book of Daniel, so it's not made up. And so the point here is that over the nations are these territorial authorities that Paul in the New Testament called principalities and powers. So their belief was that in the earthly realm, there was earthly kings and authorities, but there were also heavenly authorities above them so that whatever happened on earth happened in the heavens. Mm -hmm. So if there was a war going on on earth, there was a war in the heavens corresponding with that. Mm -hmm. And so that was just part of it. But so this idea is it's, it's tied in with Christ's victory over the powers. So all throughout the Old Testament, you have these pagan cultures and God gives them the lands as an inheritance. That's their Mm. inheritance. The nations are their inheritance. But then, you know, as Israel comes of age and and Israel falls away, and then God says, I'm going to bring Messiah, and Messiah will come and inherit the nations. Mm -hmm. So the notion of, you know, and I explain all this in my my books, we can can focus in on them, but I just want to tell the, this is one of the pictures of the provocative theology that I discovered was a storyline in the Bible that I hadn't seen before and hadn't appreciated and it doesn't change the bible it just makes it deeper and richer Mm -hmm. and so this notion is well so there's these territorial powers but when messiah comes what he will do is he will break that inheritance all right he's going to disinherit those gods those watchers and messiah will inherit the nations he will take back the territory it's kind of like the watchers have deeds land deeds right and mm-hmm. messiah is going to take their land deeds back and when he does he's it's going to be monumental right it's going to be earth shattering so there's all this language about you know the heavens shaking and all this kind of stuff that's not literal that's talking about the spiritual realm and the seriousness of it all and so what happens is when messiah comes he conquers those watchers and there's this whole f- storyline throughout the bible about Messiah's victory over the powers, the spiritual powers. And when he does that is he does it at his resurrection and ascension. And Psalm 82 talks about this very storyline. In fact, I have a book I wrote called Psalm 82. If you go to Psalm 82, it's telling this story that I'm telling you right now. God has taken his place in the divine council. There it is. In the Mm -hmm. midst of the gods. He holds judgment. And that word is literally gods. So in other words, in the Bible, the word gods isn't what doesn't mean what we make it mean. It means something different. It means divine heavenly beings, but they're not the same as God at all. And then it says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? He basically says, you guys have not judged the world rightly. Mm -hmm. You're bad guys. You're wicked. Therefore, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince, like any earthly prince. So he's saying, look, you watchers have been wicked and you're going to be judged. And then it says, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. And arise, O God, in Greek is the aneste, which is the word that's, that refers to the resurrection of Christ. So there's a, a hint here that Christ's resurrection is going to allow him to inherit the nations, take them back from these watchers. And that occurs, of course, in the New Testament. Uh, Christ inherits the nations. He, um, 
he rises to the throne at his ascension. And so when he becomes enthroned over all the earth is when he takes back the nations, right? Then that's what allows the gospel to go forth like never before because mankind is no longer under bondage to these territorial spirits. They are now free and now they can come to the gospel in Jesus mm. Christ. You know, that's a real quick brief storyline, but that's sort of one interesting theological story thread. Look, I come from the classical reformed background, so it was all about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the legal forensic justification. I know all that stuff, you know, and mm -hmm. it's true. It's all true. It's legal. It's philosophical. It's theological. But there's also this other story. And by the way, substitutionary atonement is a story. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a story rooted in the atonement of the old covenant. But there's another story. There's several stories in the atonement, and this is another new one. And so yeah. what happened was I discovered this. Wow, this is fascinating. These territory. By the way, when I speak about territorial spirits, it's not like the modern-day charismatics who are saying there are territorial spirits, because according to the Bible, they were all conquered in Christ at the, in the first century. So that's not that's not what the Bible's saying, you know. So this was so fascinating to me. It changed my life. I started to write. I turned that screenplay into a novel called Noah Primeval. And that became the first. Uh. Like, now the novels are up to like 12 or 14 novels. And it starts with Chronicles of the Nephilim. That's the series. And what I do is I retell biblical stories where these watchers or where giants are part of the story because the mm. giants are connected to that storyline in an, I won't get into that now, but just they're connected yeah. in a theological way. And I found it fascinating. And Goliath was only one. There were, you know, there, Goliath had a brother, by the way, and he was a giant. And it says that there were five other giants who were part of his circle who were hunting David. And that's in the Bible. I'm not making that up, but, right. but we just don't catch these things or we read over them and, and they, there's no more details. So we don't think about them. So I, I wanted to retell those stories so yeah, I use a little bit of fiction imagination, you know, I'm sort of filling in between. I try to stay true to the biblical story, but I fill in between the gaps with fiction that can make sense of it all and bring some theological meaning to the stuff that we do know. And I wanted to focus on that supernatural element of the watchers and what, what might the spiritual world have looked like during the historical events that were going on in the days of Abraham, in the days of David, in the days of Joshua. Yeah. So I wrote that series, and then it followed up with the series of Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and that has to do with the origin story of the book of Revelation. In the first mm. century, John wrote Revelation. I tell that story. Again, I have the supernatural element to it as well. Mm -hmm. And now the current series is Chronicles of the Watchers. The first book is Jezebel, and um, it's one of my best books yet. But they all integrate with each other, and they're all connected to this storyline motif of the Watchers, the Divine Council, the uh, Christ's victory over the powers, which is uh, the theological term for that is called Christus Victor. Mm. And um, I tell all this stuff uh, by retelling Bible stories, and it's been a best actually you know, I'm not boasting, but just to, to, to let your, your listeners know yeah. that it's dominated the biblical fiction categories on Amazon because I think Christians have really come to appreciate it. I was worried that they they might not get that imaginative side that I was sort of right. – but I was wrong. I think 
a lot of Christians do get it. They do appreciate it. And, and I think we've, th- there's been a real growth in the last 20 years that I didn't see 20 years ago. I think there's a greater appreciation for the imagination. So I, I just want to say that that's out there. That's great. And if anybody's listening and they're wondering, okay, what do you, what do you mean the whole angels and the nations? You can re- read more about it with Brian's material. But if you just look into Daniel 7, I think it is, where Daniel's praying, looking for an answer to something— an angel comes to him and he talks about having to fight the king of Persia, I believe it says, in terms of a spiritual fight to get to Daniel. And so there is this battle going on. I mean, it's right there. Yeah. Oh, Daniel 8 and 10, I think, is when it, yeah, that's when he gets those watchers and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's in the Bible, man. And and so, look, I wrote theological books. And I, honestly, for me personally, I mm-hmm. felt like the storytelling is the most powerful means because not everyone is into theology. But if you read my novels, you'll be entertained, but you'll also learn theology through a more interesting, entertaining way if you're not into the – I have the theology there. But for those who want more, I write occasional books like Psalm 82 where I explain all that. There's another book called When Giants Were on the Earth, and Mm -hmm. that is sort of a compendium of all the appendices from all my novels. I would write an appendix with each novel so I could explain what was going on, where I got the research from, right? But I put them all together in one for those who wanted just the Bible study material. So When Giants Were on the Earth is sort of the intense biblical, that's one of my best sellers, by the way. People love that because it's heavy theological, but fascinating and Bible-believing type stuff. So there's that. Yeah, that's a, that's that's one of my best-selling books. Um, Psalm 82 is a shorter book, but I also am proud of that book because I feel like it really does communicate that divine counsel view in the, you know, in the in the briefest way possible with strong biblical support. Yes, and you know, I'll, I'll say one thing about Psalm 80, the book Psalm 82. Also, is that, you know, Brian, this is what I like about your writing. Just when I'm sitting there thinking, okay, here's a, here's something that seems to be a gap. Yeah. You always end your chapter with, so that brings up this question, and boom, here we're going to tell you next. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So I, I've now learned to expect that any question that I have pop in my head, you seem to answer in the next chapter. So that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's been my journey, and maybe this is a little bit too much to go into, um, but but I'm also a, a screenwriter. And so mm-hmm. um, my most recent uh, thing that I've been doing is I've been actually putting out a new series called screenplays as literature and Ooh. screenplays are something that most people are not used to reading because they think it has to do with making movies and it does but screenplays are another form of storytelling that i think people sh- it should catch on and people should really start to read and enjoy because they're somewhere between a short story and a novel see mm-hmm. there a screenplay is written to be to be made into a movie, but so that means it's briefer and it's quicker, but it's very action-packed and very rich, very strong because you got to say less with more. Mm. And so I put a lot of these screenplays up for sale um, on Amazon, and they're doing pretty well. They, it's a new way of storytelling that I think people should learn to appreciate because I really like reading screenplays. Yeah, you know, it's like I say, it's you can read a short story in half an hour. But sometimes that's too short for me. You know, I want to take a couple hours. Like, so basically, when you're reading these screenplays, you imagine the movie in your mind while you're. So it's like you're reading a movie. You're reading the script, but you're imagining the movie in your mind. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my latest um, series that I put out. 
Thanks. I would have never thought of that. And that that's great you suggest that. So I'll have to go look some of those up. So one last thing is we, as we come to an end here, and I, you know, again, want to thank you for being here and appreciate all your time and just the insightfulness as well as uh, I like the fact that it's provocative. As far as our the church goes in America, anything you want to say that for encouragement or guidance to people that are listening that would help them apply all this in their life? Any last words on something along those lines? Wow. Nothing other than just keep digging into the Word of God because it's, to me, that's where it just is unending. It's just keep going. Just keep, you know, I guess, yeah, I would say this. I, I know a lot of Christians, and I think a lot of Christians, they'll read the Bible, but they don't study it. They really mm-hmm. don't. It's boring for them. Maybe it's hard for them to get into it. I don't know, for whatever reason. But I think you should really commit to studying the Bible a little bit every day. Mm. At least, you know, like ideally, I'd say an hour. Not everyone can have that time, but an hour a day. But okay, maybe 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just devotionals, not just reading, actually studying, reading some theological books or articles or something that goes in deeper into something you might be curious about. Because that's that's where you find mind the depths of God's word. Mm-hmm. I think you get to know Him deeper and richer than just sort of the shallow reading or devotional will do. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. That's that's great. It's you're changed honest. my life. Yeah, I was gonna say you're a good example of it. It's kind of long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation, as Peter said. There's so much there and so much depth. And that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to bring up some of the other things like the council, because those are the depths that you can find yes. that help you put together things. And this is a great thing for those listening. If you read his books, you'll see how this connects all the way through into the New Testament and what it means to you and your view of the Bible and how to apply it. So that's just my little encouragement there, but that's really what it means to me. And I really thank you uh, for expressing that to us today and, and especially the storytelling. Thanks for having me on. I love your concept of the oh. awe of God. And I hope that I've been able to encourage people to to want to pursue deeper the, the creative, imaginative side of God, the theological side of God, to mm. realize that it's not just head knowledge, but it leads to beauty and awe and, and depth that is very uh, satisfying and fulfilling spiritually. Amen. Well, God bless you, brother. And, uh, you know, let's keep in touch and we'll talk soon. That, bro. Thanks for having me on. All right. Good night.